we are, um, I, I think we're having some trouble with the audio for those that are watching online and, and it's um, getting some feedback. We need to, we'll work on that this week and try to get the kinks worked out of it. Um, but for those of you that didn't see, um, if, we, if you haven't met my, my sister or my brother-in-law, they're here this morning and just showed up at the front door and I saw my, them come in and I was like, oh my goodness. At first I was going to walk up to them and say, hi, it's nice to have you here. I'm not, uh, because they were wearing the mask, I didn't see, recognize them at first. I was about to act like they were a guest and like, oh my goodness, what are you doing? Isabella saw them at, when she came in later and started crying because she doesn't, she gets excited over surprises, and so that was her, that was her response. Um, but we're, I'm excited for, the, for them to join us <coughs> this morning. Um, I kind of wish you had given me a heads up so we could have had them join us with worship to, to help lead worship, but it is what it is. We're, um, we're continuing this series in Hebrews, and last week we, uh, we, we talked about um, atonement and how Jesus covers our sins in a complete way because he is infinite and he is eternal and our sin is infinite and bears eternal consequence. And we saw that he is greater because he can cover our sins in a way that the old covenant, like rehashing, couldn't. It, it could not cover our sins. It, could not, it was not adequate enough to cover our eternal consequence. But Jesus is. And based off of that, because we are covered by his sins, because we are covered by his atonement, eternally and infinitely, we now have the ability to share in his presence. And there's certain characteristics of Christians that we hold as a, re, as a result of his atonement. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in, in Hebrews chapter 11 and 12. Um, so I'm, I'm really thrilled to get into this part. This is kind of the pinnacle um, of the book of Hebrews. So this is, this is what we uh, have been leading up into. So before we get started with that this morning, let's open up with a word of prayer. And then we'll dive straight into the word. Father God, thank you for your revelation. Your revelation has been passed down to us through thousands of years of history, from Adam and Eve, to Noah, to Abraham, to Moses. You have revealed yourself to us through an act of grace, even though we can't comprehend you. And now through Jesus, we can have your spirit within us so that we can draw near to you in ways that even though we might not understand the possibility of, we can feel your presence in. And this morning, as we dive into your word, into your teachings, I pray that we are uplifted by the truth of your presence, by the, the actions of faith of those who came before us, by the, the desire for us to live as you would have us live and, and to reach out and be a part of your presence on Zion. God, this morning, speak through me, speak through your word, let it come alive, and speak into our hearts. But most importantly this morning, help us to all be here desiring your presence to come upon us, desiring your spirit to fulfill us, and guide us into the rest of this week and day. God, thank you for your love through your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So as I said, we are, we're looking at the presence of God. We're looking at how all of these other things within the book of Hebrews, how Hebrews, the, the author of Hebrews is saying, because of Jesus, in Jesus, our religion, our faith is greater than what came before. And how all of those things that are greater now culminate in the ending of this book. And uh, what, what we're going to see today is we're going to look at three different 
characteristics that set us apart as Christians. Three different characteristics that kind of make up our identity of, of Christians that are greater than the Old Covenant, are greater than the Old Testament, greater than what came before. And in thinking about that, I, I've been, I, I was trying to think, what, what do characteristics have to do with, with our lives, with our daily lives, with how we live? And what came to mind was the idea of cliques. Uh, if you remember back to high school or middle school, cliques were these subgroupings that we'd place ourselves in where we'd find people that were like us, that shared the same interests, shared the same hobbies, had the same mindset, and we would just put ourselves around them constantly. We wouldn't bother with anyone else. We'd just lump ourselves together and become like this one giant organism because I guess variety isn't the spice of life. We just want to be safe and secure in our little group. And, and it, that always kind of baffled me a, a little bit, probably because I kind of, you know, in, in the clip, the jocks, you have the nerds, you have the, the preps, the, you know, you have all these different cliques in high school, and I kind of, I didn't fit into one of them. I fit into a, a bunch of them, because I was an athlete, so I was a jock. I was a nerd, because I read comic books and played video games and loved sci-fi movies, so I fit in that group. I was aware of everything going on in the school, so I guess that made me the, the prep. And so I, I didn't like the idea of cliques. I didn't like the idea of sitting into one specific group. That, that just kind of was weird to me. And I remember finding out for the first time what a click was and and that concept still baffled me that's going to happen all day it's going to just keep falling ice is going to keep falling there's a bunch of it up there so that happens we're not under attack it's just the ice falling from heaven um so we, back to my my story it was in sixth grade i was going into sixth grade we were at a camp we had this christian camp that my school or my church supported similar to how we support white mills and i was at this camp and when you're going into sixth grade, you're, you're about to like begin this journey where you take a hiatus away from being a human. You know, when you're in middle school, you're no longer, you're, you're kind of like a subspecies of human. You're, you're, you're different than, than what you end up becoming. That's what I like to say, because you're just like a whole new creature. Um, and I was kind of going into this stage where I didn't understand life yet, but I was starting to have all these different emotions and thoughts and feelings, and I didn't understand them. And I was going to camp, and and I was there at camp, and they were talking, the, the week was spent talking about socialization and, and, and being good stewards of the gifts of Christ and not judging others. And, and we were having this small group session talking about cliques. And I had no idea what a clique was. I didn't understand the concept of them. But the small group leader talked about them, and he said, you know, there's jocks, there's nerds, there's preps, there's, oh, he broke down all these things. And then he asked us, if you were a part of a clique, which clique would you be a part of? And I was, I have no idea. I don't even know what that, that word means. I don't understand the concept of them. And so he looked at me and said, oh, you know, Garrett, I think if you were in a clique, you would be a jock. And I was like, what? I don't like that. Because when he was describing the cliques, he said jocks were just dumb athletes. That, that was what he said. So he looked at me and said, I think you'd be a jock. And I'm thinking, I, so I'm a dumb, smelly athlete? That's what you're saying to me? And, you know, being my emotional hiatus from humanity self, I just broke out and started crying and yelled at the, the small group leader and kind of just like went off on him because of it. And I, I, I remember where we were sitting, I remember getting upset about it, and, and it just, it, it baffles me how we like to lump ourselves into the characteristics we have and pull ourselves into categories of people. But the thing is, as Christians, we have these categories that we inherit, these characteristics that we inherit from Christ, that the Spirit falls upon us. We have faith. 
We have a moral law written in our hearts. And most importantly, we have the ability to stand in the presence of God. And these are characteristics that were present in Israel, that were present in Judaism before Christ, but have been ultimately perfected and fulfilled in Christ. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning as, as we open up of the word. And, and we're going to start this morning in Hebrews chapter 11. And we're going to be looking at at the first characteristic we're going to be looking at that we share in common as Christians. You know, you could say that, that we're the clique of Christianity, um, although that would have some negative connotations with it. But the characteristic that belongs to us as Christians, first, is faith. We share a common faith. We share a common belief. And, and the way we hold that faith is, is common with those who came before us. And chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews is what is known as the Hall of Faith, the Heroes of Faith. It, this entire chapter is devoted to the author speaking to the Jewish people, Jewish Christians, and saying, remember all of these people that came before us who were great men and women of faith. And he recalls all of them, and he recounts all of them. And I'm not going to read the entire chapter, but I want to start... Um, we're going to kind of go over some of the people, but I want to start by reading the beginning of the chapter, Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, that explains the author's definition of faith. He says, Now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For by it our ancestors won God's approval. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen may be made from things that are not visible. The author's definition of faith here is that faith is believing, it's hoping in, it's, it's being sure of a reality that we can't witness. It's us living in the natural and believing in the supernatural. It's us being able to quantify and understand and, and kind of logically explain how the, the universe came into creation, but not ever being able to see how the universe came into creation. That's what faith is. We, you, know, you, you look at a scientist that, that will spend his entire life studying particle physics or astrophysics and explaining how the universe came into being, but at the same time, they have to have a level of faith. They might be able to explain it, they might be able to quantify it, they might be able to put all these numbers in there, but they have to have faith that those numbers add up to something. So any level of life that we have, we have to have an aspect of faith. As Christians, our faith is steeped in the knowledge that we don't see the reality of our faith. We don't see the eternal heavenly realm. We don't see the supernatural, but we are assured that it's there. That's what faith is. And, and he's about to, the author throughout the chapter 11, is about to explain and, and use examples of heroes of the faith who lived by this type of faith, who were assured of the promises of God, who knew that even though they couldn't see the fulfillment of these promises, that it was going to be fulfilled, who, even though they couldn't see God physically, knew that he was there speaking to them. We have people that, uh, uh, in the faith, such as Abel, who offered uh, an offering to God that was perfect. He, he gave his offering and it was better than Cain, and he lived out his faith. We have Enoch, who was so steeped in faith that God just took him away. That God just took him away, and he walked with God. Noah is mentioned here, a man who was ridiculed and criticized for following a God that no one else can see. He built a giant boat and proclaimed rain when rain hadn't ever been seen, and proclaimed a flood when there had never been a flood. And he did that because of a God no one else could see. 
There's Abraham and, and Sarah who were called to leave everything behind, leave their people, leave their family, leave their possessions, and go and follow this one singular God instead of following a multiplicity of God, gods and go to this land that they had never been to. That's faith. Another one that's mentioned l- later on is, is Jacob and Isaac. Isaac is the son of Abraham the offspring of Abraham and Jacob is the father of Israel. And both of these people had to trust in God's promises and trust in the fulfillment of these promises, even though the fulfillment of them didn't happen in their lifetime. They had a level of faith. There's Moses, who was so steeped in faith that he was willing to go back into the land that had cast him out. And he was willing to follow God, even though you know, he really didn't understand God. And he came to the point that he was the most revered prophet of Israel, and is the only person in, that we have recorded that was able to be in the presence of God. And we'll go into that in a little bit more in a second. Rahab is mentioned in here. Rahab is a, a woman that in, in the Old Testament was part of another nation, but was emphatically trusting in Yahweh, the God of Israel, and had faith in him, even though everyone else in her nation, everyone else in her family believed that this wasn't the God who existed, that, that they had other gods. And yet she trusted in God, and, and a, a Gentile woman, a Canaanite, is now mentioned in Scripture, in Hebrew, and, and speaking to, he, and to, to the Hebrews. All these people <coughs> that, that, is me- that are mentioned here in chapter 11 are people that lived by their faith. They lived by the def- definition of trusting in a God they couldn't see, trusting in a reality that they couldn't understand, trusting in promises that they weren't going to have fulfilled in their lifetime. That's the definition of living by faith. And after recalling all of these people, after talking of all of the examples, the author then goes in, in verse 11, or verse 39, and explains what he's talking about, what the point he's making with these examples. He says, all of these people were approved through their faith. They did not receive what was promised since God had provided them something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. Therefore, since we also have such a large crowd of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that laid before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So here's the point that, he, that the author is making. Saying, all of these people, they had amazing faith. We should try to emulate their faith. We should try to live by our faith the same way they live, but they don't have what we have. We have a perfecter of our faith. He, he says, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, let us run with endurance in the race of life. Let us run against the, the difficulties. Let us run even though we might not see the fulfillment of God's promises, even though we might not see the reality of the supernatural and, and e- the eternal kingdom. Let us run like those before us with our eyes on Jesus. Those before us, the author is saying, they didn't have Jesus. They had the promise of Jesus, and they still had faith in Yahweh. We have Jesus. Let us keep our eyes on him as we run forward in the race of life. We need to remember as Christians that we share this common faith, a faith that is similar to those that came before us, but a faith that is also greater because we have Jesus, because we have the source and perfecter of what became before as well. But as we talk about faith, 
we can turn to James, and we will here in a second, to see that faith without works is dead. Now, what does that mean? <clears throat> we are perfected by our faith in Jesus. We are cleansed, and our atonement comes by believing and accepting the Spirit of God. Nothing we do perfects us. Nothing we do atones us. That all comes from Jesus. But our works, our actions, the, 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 the morality and, and the ethics within us should be a proof, should be a pouring out of the faith that is within us. And without that pouring out, we aren't able to desire constantly to come to the last part, which is dwelling in the place of God. But the second part that we're talking about here, this pouring out of morality, of actions, of living for the faith that we believe, that comes in Hebrews 12, starting in verse 14. The author says, Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up, causing trouble and defiling many. And make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. For you know that later, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, even though he sought it with tears because he didn't find any opportunity for, for repentance. Now the author goes on, where he was talking about faith, but now he shifts, and he talks about, you know, that faith is, is what begins our faith. It's what we step out on. It's, it's where we begin this journey. But people don't see our faith. Remember, faith is being sure of what we can't see. It's being assured of what we hope for. People can't see what we hope for. They can't see what we can't see, but what they can see is our faith that pours out of us. They can see our morality. They can see our ethics. They can, they can see our charitable service and actions and our humble nature. That's what the author is saying. It, it, is if we want the world to see Jesus, we need to live like the spirit of Jesus that is within us. And then he uses this example of Esau in order to hit home. And I've, I've often, often wondered when I've read this, why does he bring up Esau? There's so many other people in the Old Testament that lived immorally and were Jews that could have fit in this topic of example. Why Esau? Why is he bringing up Esau? Why is he bringing up the birthright? And if you don't know this narrative, <clears throat> Jacob and Esau were the twins, the twin brothers of Isaac. They were the, the descendants of Abraham. You had Abraham, you had Isaac, you had Jacob and Esau. Esau was the oldest one. That my, if you don't know, me and my brother are twins. I have a twin brother. He's the older one by 29 minutes. Must have been a long 29 minutes for my mother. Jacob and Esau, Esau was born and Jacob came out holding on to his heel. So that would, would have been a quick birth. Now, the thing is, it doesn't matter if twins or not within Jewish culture, within this time period that Jacob and Esau were born. The firstborn basically got everything. The secondborn got the scraps. You were the, the runt of the litter. Esau came out and he just coming out first meant that he was going to be the inheritor of all of Isaac and essentially Abraham's wealth. Jacob would get a portion of it. Jacob would have some blessings too, but Esau was supposed to get it all. Now, what Esau ended up doing when they were young boys, we don't know exactly the age, Esau was a hunter. He was an outdoorsman. Jacob liked to stay inside, so another comparison between my brother and I. <clears throat> and Esau came back from a long day of hunting. He was worn out. He was exhausted. He was hungry. 
Jacob was making some stew, and uh, Esau said, give me something to eat. And Jacob said, give me your birthright. Okay, that is not a fair trade. A little bowl of soup for all of what your father had, who was a very wealthy man. But I guess Esau was so hungry in that moment that he said, okay, you can have my birthright, give me the soup. Now the reason the author would bring this up here is because Esau, it's not necessarily an immoral action that Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. It's not necessarily unethical, but it's definitely unwise. Esau was so focused on this finite, temporal feeling, on this hunger, on this desire, on seeing, I want this right here in front of me, that he was willing to give up a blessing, an eternal blessing, as it would become, for a bowl of soup. Now, let's tie that to our lives. What are we willing to give up in place of our eternal promise of the kingdom? Well, I'm just going to pursue this desire. I'm just going to pursue wealth. I'm just going to pursue this career. I'm just going to pursue this individual. And we become so focused on that pursuit that we neglect the eternal kingdom of God. That's the comparison that the author's making. Esau was so focused on this one thing that was right in front of him that he threw aside the eternal blessing, the birthright that was his and his alone. How often do we as Christians see what's right in front of us and pursue it and desire it so much that we're willing to throw away, to not focus on, to neglect the blessing and promise of God? We have to remember, the point that he's making is, is that Christians share a common morality. We share a common ethic. We share a common desire. That's the point that is being made here. But our desire shouldn't be anything of this world. It shouldn't be anything temporal. It shouldn't be anything finite. Because we've been gifted eternity. We've been gifted the kingdom of God. And in this conversation, going from Esau to talking about eternity he segues into this next verse, verses 18 through 21 I'm going to read. He says, For you have not come to what could be touched, to a blazing fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words. Those who heard it begged that not another word be spoken to them, for they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The appearance was so terrifying that Moses said, I am, a trembling, I am trembling with fear. It's really easy to get lost in the transition between those two paragraphs. He was just talking about Esau, and now he's talking about getting stoned at the base of a mountain in Moses. Okay, what's transitioning here? What's going on here? Well, the author is using Esau to say, this guy desired what was right in front of him. He desired earthly things in place of heavenly promises. But you all Christians, those who desire Christ, those who have his spirit within us, why would we desire what's in front of us when we have been gifted, when we have been graciously given the ability to stand in the presence of God, unlike any who have come before us? He continues on in verse 22. He says, Instead you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to myriads of angels, a festive gathering, to the assembly of the firstborn whose names have been written in heaven, to a judge who is God of all, to the spirits of righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, 
into the sprinkled blood, which says better things than Abel. The author is saying, why would you be consumed and concerned with earthly things when we have been given this ability to stand on Zion, to stand in the presence of God for all of eternity? He's going from Esau, who gave up everything for one little piece of stew, to saying, why would you give up eternity for a finite reality? And in saying that, he uses the example of Mount Zion. And I just want to unpack that a little bit. Mount Zion was the mountain that Jerusalem was built upon. And we've talked in previous weeks how the temple held the dwelling place of God. The most holy of holies was where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was where God resided. It was essentially his throne room. The temple was placed within the city of Jerusalem. And the city of Jerusalem was built on Mount Zion. Ironically, you can look back at the Old Testament and Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac on Mount Zion. That's God stopped him. And it is a foreshadowing of Jesus being sacrificed on that mountain eventually for us. Now the reason that the author places this here is because he's saying that Mount Zion, this is where God's presence was. This is where the temple was. This is where the most holy of holies was. This was where Jesus became our atonement. This is where Jesus was sacrificed. This is where Jesus gave his life. And we have the ability to be in his presence for eternity. Why would we focus on an earthly reality? The last characteristic, the most important characteristic of Christians is that we share God's presence. We share it in our hearts, on earth, in in his spirit that's dwelling within us, and we share it into all of eternity. But we often miss that. We often neglect that. We often forget that. And, and the author of Hebrews warns us against that as he concludes this section of his letter. 25, he says, See to it that you don't reject the one who speaks. For if they did not escape when, when they rejected him who warned them on earth, even less will we, will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. His voice shook the earth at that time, but now he has promised, yet once more I will, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This expression, yet once more, indicates the removal of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what is not shaken might remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Why would we serve? Why would we live? Why would we dwell? Why would we focus on things that can be shaken? On an earth that is going to fall away, that an earth that is going to be consumed by a reality that's going to dissipate. When we have been given an eternity, a dwelling with God on Zion. There is an article that I read. Um, I want to conclude with this, this illustration, with this story. Um, Ada Markham shared this on Facebook about a year ago now. And I asked her as she came in if she could remember the name of the minister, because I could not for the life of me remember the name of this minister in the article, and she couldn't either. Um, and it, he was a, a minister of a large church, and he was, like very many ministers of growing churches, he was worn out by the numbers, by trying to bring more people in, by trying to raise more money, by trying to have more people come to Christ. All of the numbers that end up taking over a ministry, he was just worn out by it. 
And he said that he can remember in 2019, at the end of the year, he was about to come on stage on a Saturday evening worship service. He was about to preach, and he was worn down. He was exhausted. All of these emotions were running through him, and he remembers standing behind stage praying and saying, God, just deliver this message for me. Come upon me. Speak to me. And he opened his eyes, and he said he was no longer standing there behind stage. He was in another place. He was in a, a vision. He was in a on a mountain. And uh, I'm pretty apprehensive about looking at visions and prophecies because Jesus warns us about bewaring of sheep, wolves in sheep's clothing. Regardless of whether this was true or not, the message is extremely clear and pertinent. Because what this minister felt, he was on this mountain, he was walking, he came to this table, and around this table were seated people that he just knew were heroes of the faith, and at the head of the table was something that he knew, someone he knew was the presence of God, and he knew instantly that he was on Mount Zion. Without a shadow of a doubt, he realized that, and the presence of God spoke to him, and it became clear to him in those moments that as a minister, he had neglected to teach and proclaim and make sure that his congregation was living for the presence of God. They had become what is known as an inch deep and a mile wide. The church today is growing in this trend of quantifying, of bringing in numbers, of growing, of what can we do, what can we, where can we go, how many people can we bring in, how much money can we raise, and we're starting to do it without the presence of God. Now, I don't necessarily think that's happening here at Freedom. But it's a danger that's happening all over the world. And as Christians, you know, we are called to have this characteristic of faith. We're called to have a, a characteristic of actionable works that pour out from our faith. But most importantly, we're called to desire and dwell in the presence of God whether it's at our own home before we go to bed, whether it's around the table with other believers, whether it's in the presence of a worship setting on a Sunday morning, we are called to be in the presence of God, to desire the presence of God, to remind ourselves that we're living for an eternity, not for a finite existence on earth. Why would we sell our birthright for a bowl of stew? Why would we give up an eternity with Him for a limited reality here. And I'm afraid that many in the church are growing at risk of being willing to sell that birthright for a bowl of stew. And I hope that none of us here are. But if you have caught yourself being in that point where you're desiring more and more the things of this world and you're neglecting God out of those desires, then maybe we sh should reassess. And if you haven't given into that birthright, if you haven't accepted the spirit that gives us the eternity, then you're still beholden to the reality that this earth faces, to the fire, to the judgment, to what's going to consume it. And I just pray that you accept the atonement that we talked about last week. Because without that atonement, we don't have eternity. But once we have eternity, why would we focus on the reality of this world? It's really easy. The world's crashing down around us. Why wouldn't we be worried about it? 
The world's constantly coming out with new things to buy, new things to enjoy. Why wouldn't we enjoy them? This world looks like a paradise. Why wouldn't we just give in to it? Because we have to remember that faith isn't about what we see. It's not what we interact with. It's about an eternity that we're hoping for. And we live out of that faith. We profess God out of that faith. We let people see our actions and see our faith through those actions because we desire to be in his presence now and for eternity. And I pray that that's our desire here at Freedom. That's your desire individually. And if you haven't accepted that presence into your life, that you make that decision now to do it. Let's close with a, with a word of prayer. Father God, this morning we saw the importance of desiring your presence over anything in this world, over letting go the temporal and finite existence here. God, strengthen us to pursue you in every way. Encourage us to be in your presence, that when we gather together on a Sunday morning, we are insistent upon feeling your movement, that it's not a worship service, it's not a time of, of gathering together unless you are in our midst. Help us desire that on a Sunday morning, on a weekday, at lunch, at breakfast, at dinner, at night. Let us desire your presence to be moving within us. And let us desire an eternity with you over anything here. God, thank you for the love you have for us, for your word, for the atonement that comes through Jesus and through his spirit that's upon us that brings his presence into our midst every single day, every single hour. Lord, we love you. It's your son's name we pray. Amen.